And welcome to The Movie Passport, a podcast series about world cinema. Today, we'll be traveling to the country of Nigeria. My name is Duncan, or Belkarist on the internet, and joining me to chat about Nigerian cinema, we have... Hey everyone, it's Bina007. Well, welcome back, Bina. Thanks for coming. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you and to all the listeners. Uh, Before we get into our main discussion, I'd like to give the listener a brief history of Nigeria and its film industry. So Nigeria is a country in West Africa. It was named after the Niger River, which flows through its highlands and into the Gulf of Guinea. Nigeria was home to several powerful indigenous civilizations. The Kingdom of Nri emerged during the Middle Ages and traded extensively with the Arab Muslims of North Africa. The Arabs referred to its people as Al-Sudan, which means the Blacks. Slavery was common in this region, with those captured in raids and wars forced to serve their conquerors. In the 16th century, Portuguese explorers made contact with the people of Lagos uh, in southern Nigeria. This marked the beginning of the Atlantic slave trade, with Nigeria producing some of the largest slave trading ports in the world. The various kingdoms of West Africa warred against one another, but were all eventually conquered by the Sokoto Muslim Caliphate which ruled the region from the early 19th century to the early 20th century, before being supplanted by the British Empire. Nigeria achieved independence from foreign rule in 1960, but this was followed by a civil war and a succession of military dictatorships. The country is divided roughly in half between a Muslim population in the north and a Christian population in the south. Today, Nigeria has the largest population and economy on the continent and is often referred to as the giant of Africa. Unfortunately, it also suffers from high levels of corruption and crime. Nigeria has the third largest film industry in the world, sitting just behind India and the United States. The earliest feature made in Nigeria was Palaver, a 1926 British film that portrays a rivalry between a colonial officer and a local tin miner. During the first half of the century, many films were exhibited by mobile cinema vans that would roam the country in search of audiences. After Nigeria achieved independence, Local film exhibition and production rapidly expanded. Many native theatre talents, such as Hubert Ogandi, Ola Bolugun, and Moses Oleya, transitioned to the big screen. Cinema attendance declined in the late 1980s, and most film producers switched to television. The 1992 TV film Living in Bondage proved hugely successful and led to a thriving home video and video piracy market. Nigerian films dominated television screens throughout the African continent and African diaspora, resulting in Nigerian fashion and slang becoming highly influential. However, by the late 2000s, productions had developed a bad reputation for their lack of artistic or technical capacity. To combat this problem, the Nigerian government awarded grants for the production of high-quality films and sponsored filmmakers to receive formal training. Films such as The Figurine, Half of a Yellow Sun and The Wedding Party are the fruits of this experiment, all of which were commercially and critically successful. They ushered in an era known as New Nigerian Cinema, notable for its more subtle acting and cosmopolitan themes. 
So that is a brief recap. Uh, but I was curious, Bina, do you have any connection to Nigeria? Have you ever visited the country? And have you watched many Nigerian films before this podcast? So I've got no connection to West Africa at all. Never visited East Africa a lot. Uh, my parents grew up in Kenya, but not West Africa. Um, I have watched some Nigerian films as ever. <clears throat> my response is always whatever gets curated at the London Film Festival. But also because it's a quirk of the way TV packages work in this country that if you subscribe to the Indian channels, because I'm of Indian heritage, so you want to get some of the Indian channels on your satellite TV, it mm -hmm. often comes, it comes bundled with what they call international channels. So you get all ah. the Nigerian stuff. So, and there are channels that are just chock-a-block with Nollywood films. Um, so on occasion, me and my dad will watch a Nollywood film because it just, I think for him, it's quite reminds him maybe of parts of Kenya. So I've watched a few films with him, typically quite lighthearted capers or comedies, but um, I wouldn't mm. claim to be any kind of expert. No. How about you? Uh, no, I don't think I've watched any Nigerian films before this podcast. My main uh, interaction with it was sort of clips that have uh, bubbled to the surface of YouTube, sort of very outlandish, melodramatic clips from sort of low budget um, Nigerian films, almost sort of like so bad it's good kind of thing. There's a famous clip of a woman running down the street and a man gets out of a car and says, why are you running? Why are you running? And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a very popular meme that circulates. Um, I don't exactly know where it comes from. It might be a Nigerian TV show, but that's, that's a very uh, popular clip on the internet. Um, but no, I, I certainly haven't watched, hadn't watched any Nigerian films before this, but I really wanted to because it had such a big reputation as a film industry. Um, and honestly, never really watched much African cinema at all. So I really wanted to give several uh, a deep dive. I find it fascinating that like Lagos is the big city on in West Africa, right? I think mm. it's the biggest city in Africa bar um, yeah. South African cities. And it's so dominant culturally in terms of music mm. and cinema and the arts. And then when my dad grew up in Nairobi in East Africa and Kenya, is like the equivalent. It's like the big major city in East Africa. And yet it doesn't feel like it has the same cultural um, influence. Like it, it feels like it's very dominant in politics and business, but it's never had the same like music industry outpouring or cinema outpouring. So I think there must be something specific about Lagos and historically as you got into how it's fomented that sort of cultural imprint. I feel a lot of what people think of as African culture and even dress comes from Nigeria. That is interesting. And I guess Kenya, you'd think, would have a similar connection to the Western world because it was also a British colony, I believe, same as Nigeria. So they might have had a similar migration and similar cultural sort of transfer. But it sounds like Nigeria just has a bigger cultural footprint for whatever reason. Um, do you remember why your dad found Nigerian films so similar to Kenyan films or why they reminded him of growing up in Kenya? I think it's that urban feel that you get a little bit in confusion, Noah, plot heavy. Um, yeah. I think Nairobi of his youth probably has some similarities to Lagos in terms of just sheer kind of craziness of that many people hustling mm -hmm. and bustling. And also the incredible um, disparity between the poorest and the richest and that very even when it's a story that's purely about African people and no colonial people, because he grew up in colonial um, Africa, so that's a whole other layer. But the idea of the haves and have-nots and the kind of exploitation and transactional things that go on between different people 
of the same race. I think there's so many layers. So I think he probably finds that quite interesting. And I think there is a there's a nostalgia. I think my impression of that, um, the first generation of Asians who grew up in Africa, East Africa in particular, and then came here, there's a lot of nostalgia for this kind of romanticized version of what their life was back in Africa. So I think it's just anything to get back to that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, let him know he's most welcome on the podcast anytime <laughs> if he wants to come on and I don't think he would know chat about whatever he likes. <laughs> I tell you what, if you ever do an Indian one, or um, I'm, I'll get him on because he is very knowledgeable and he can tell. See, this is the interesting thing in Kenya. I think that the movie industry was dominated by Indian film because it's East Africa, so very close to Mumbai, like sailing distance. And um, he he'll talk about being six or seven years old and sort of running errands for the old aunties who lived in the neighbourhood, like going and fetching mm. their shopping and getting enough money for a movie ticket and a coke. And watching all these new release Indian films and packed out cinema houses. So I think Bollywood was huge in East Africa and still is. I remember going on holiday to Lamu, which is middle of nowhere, Kenya. And there's a big painted mural of Amitabh Bachchan, like big Bollywood star on a wall. So I think maybe that's why, maybe that distance of West Africa from India helped it have its own more um, authentic identity in cinema versus Kenya. Yeah, I think that's a I could be talking that, nonsense, like <laughs> no, no. I think that's a good theory, and it reminds me of our episode on Nepal uh, with Pukar, and he was saying a similar thing that Nepal's proximity to India meant that Nepali cinemas were saturated with uh, Bollywood films. Even Nepali films were just basically emulating, uh, and it wasn't really till the 21st century that they were able to start making um, culturally specific uh, uh, films for the for the local audiences. But um, so maybe. Kenya, a similar situation where it just falls within that sphere of influence of Indian culture. Um, but it's so fascinating yeah. looking at history, geography and culture through cinema and you see the way that ideas and business and all these things intersect and shape people's upbringing. Do you feel it's probably the same for people living in Europe who feel they're dominated by American cinema or maybe even Australia, that there's a cultural dominance of not even geographically near but linguistically near or do you feel Australia has always had like its own distinct movies? No, no. Australia really struggled right up until the 70s to break away from, um, really fr from America. Even from the beginning, it was always dominated by America. The, the Hollywood uh, businessmen or distributors muscled their way in, you know, in the 1930s and bought all the cinemas and 95% you know, of all films shown were from Hollywood from the 30s onwards. Uh and, it, it, you know, the only films prior to the 60s that were made in the country were foreign directors. And it wasn't really till the 70s when the government started, you know, wow. financing local filmmakers that uh, sort of local products started to be, to be released. So it took a while to break out of that American sphere of influence. Um, but, um, but you see it with a lot of countries, like for, former colonies, like there was a few other African films I'd like to look at, like Algeria and... Senegal, which are very strongly influenced by, by mm. French and like like European, I don't know. Europe seems to have like it, it's got like the French who are really strong, the Russians are really strong cinema, so they might have a, a lot of dominance. So like the Belgians maybe are a bit more dominated by French cinema, maybe the Danish are a bit more dominated by German cinema. So there seems to be like bigger players within Europe that have their own um, influence rather than rather than America. And European cinema is often often seems to be defined in contrast to America, like Americans Very heavily genre, subsidized genre well. narrative things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas European seems to be more about mood and 
character and <laughs> things like that style. That's it's just funny a very though because you could make that. you can make the argument that a lot of early um, golden era Hollywood is basically European export, right? That mm. all the vaudeville stars from the London stage, like Charlie Chaplin, went over, and then you know in the 1930s, all the German expressionists going over um, and creating some of the kind of very like yeah it, it's just interesting to see how the cultural currents go between the different i think these things are more liminal than maybe we think or more mo- yeah. more multi-directional in a beautiful yeah. way yeah yeah and you see that with like you know the westerns and they started making the italian westerns you start mm. with the slashes like hitchcock made um psycho and then the italians made all the giallo, giallo and yeah carpenter john carpenter took it back with halloween um, mm-hmm. the, the French love the American noir movies, so they made lots of you know French ennui movies. So it's a lot of a lot of cross pollination. Yep. Um, okay, let let's get into our main discussion. We have three films to talk about this episode. I've chosen two, and Bina has chosen one. So I will begin. Uh, and my first movie for this episode is I'm Off, which translates to This Is My Desire, and it's a 2020 drama film set in. Uh, Lagos, Nigeria. It follows two individuals, a middle-aged technician named Muf and a young hairdresser named Rosa, each of whom plan to start a better life overseas. These dreams, however, are derailed by the tragedies and challenges of everyday life. Ayamuf is a beautifully shot, beautifully acted debut film from filmmaking brothers Ai and Chuko Esiri. It takes inspirations from post-war Italian neorealist films utilizing real locations and focusing on poor and working class people as they grapple with tough economic conditions and even tougher moral choices. Imorph is a slow-paced film but also very confident, deliberate and empathetic. The camera is often still and the takes long allowing you to appreciate the narrative through the subtle and complex expressions of the performers and the dense layers of me invested in the scenes. So I was really impressed with this film. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but what did you think, Bina? Yeah, I mean, incredibly impressive for a debut. I think beautifully shot, acted, constructed, incredibly moving, um, really shows all the complexities of the moral choices of life in a city that's, you know, very stratified by class, by economic opportunity. One of the things I thought was really interesting was how um, when it comes to the the female story, she's both transactional with men and women. Like it doesn't feel, in some ways it's gendered, right, with a landlord and the boyfriend, but in other ways it's not. Um, so it, it's very moving. I did find it, the only, the only criticism I would make is I did find the structure a bit tricky. So you start off with the guy's story, which is very moving. Chekhov's junction box, as I jokingly called it in the notes. And then you yeah, move yeah. to the the woman's story, and then at the end you get back to the guy. But I was just kind of like, I felt like there was a whole movie for both of them in a way. And what did having both of them really add? I'm not sure if the linkages were strong enough for me, although they're both struggling, I guess, against they both want to leave the country, so that's a linkage. But um, I'm not sure that the two halves were additive, um, but they're both incredibly good. And I, I just, yeah, it's kind of like, I'm really glad you pointed me in the direction of this film because now it's a director that I will look out for going forward. Very, very powerful and highly recommended from my perspective. Yeah, it, it was a it was a great film. It was a very depressing film. I think from the, the title, I was for some reason thinking it might be a romance, um, but it yeah. wasn't at all. But it was so, 
so good. I just felt, especially the actor who played Moff was just such uh, an interesting performance, like so emotional. I mean, both mm. really, but, but I just felt like that scene where he breaks down and just, he says so little, but he says so much with his face and he's so restrained. Yeah, so, so much is held so Yeah, it's, it's But I felt it was hopeful for him at the end, like when you pick up the jackets. And you realize mm, yeah. he's going to run his own electrical shop. I, I felt that was hopeful. And he has taken his nephew in. Um, he's let someone else into his life. Like, he's such a loner. He doesn't really have a love life. I think he just feels economically he can't afford anything. Yeah. And um, he just wants to leave. But I, I guess by the end of it, he's grounded. He's got roots. He's like, I can't leave. It's a hopeless hope. But I can make a life here that's good and meaningful. So I thought yeah, that was yeah. more hopeful than the, the woman's story. I found that really depressing. Like... What is left to trade? Everything from your iPhone to your body to your marital status to your to a baby. I mean, there's nothing that isn't potentially transactional. Um, and even though you feel she actually might genuinely get on with um, the guy that the guy that she meets, the businessman, it's it's kind of like what hope is there for that? Because even he's suspicious. They're both mutually suspicious because what hope has real emotion got in a very transactional world? So I found that kind of like definitely more heartrending yeah and it, it feels suffocating at times like just mm. constantly need to be paying for things for rent for hospital bills for lawyers even for coffins it just keeps no matter how hard you try and they're and they're very determined at the beginning each of, of each of their stories mm. they've got their passports they're getting their visas they're excited they want to start this new life um, and it's a, I guess it's, it's not a desire for another person. It's a desire for a place and it's a, it's a desire for escape. I think they can, they've lived in these, in these situations for a long time. They know how precarious and unstable and dangerous it can be. You're just one accident away from poverty and degradation. And they're so close. I think a lot, just, a lot, it just a lot sucks of, them back in. Yeah. There's no, there's really no escape. And actually I was thinking, what if they'd even succeeded, you know, coming to Italy or Spain respectively, you know, they're still mm. going to be leading a very precarious economic existence as a first generation immigrant, also probably suffering from racism. And mm -hmm. some of the Kafkaesque stuff that they're dealing with, like, you know, you said about getting the probate and um, like resolving the sister's estate. Well, we're going through something similar at the moment. I mean, like Kafkaesque bureaucracy seems to be like a universal truth. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny living in Europe, the Europe they're trying to escape to thinking, yeah, like in terms of earning power, for sure, you'll be better off. But a lot of what you're trying to escape will follow follow you. And there'll be added problems. Because at least here, what was really fascinating to me is it's a story that truly is Nigerians in Nigeria, that it's not concerned as much with sort of colonial stuff or there's, you know, it is of itself. And I'm like, there is something, there is something good about being in the majority in your own country that they well, probably exactly. underestimate. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like you could see the reverse that the, well, I mean, where do they think all of these systems come from? They come from Europe, you know, this transactional, uh, ruthless economy. And you could imagine someone from the West, you know, having this romantic notion of Africa and it's a simple life and it's, you just, you can focus on. Oh, I think Prince Harry has life. that, doesn't he? He goes to Botswana for being yeah. free of the West corruption. You just think, oh, mate, that's so racist of itself. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's just a grind for these people. Um, and I was reading a few articles and, and the filmmakers described it as a migration story in reverse because so many of these films are the story of someone coming to a new place and trying to fit in. But this is the story of where they came from and why they 
wanted to leave. Mm. And it, it's not necessarily, a, you know, they, they deal with many tragedies, but it's not war-torn necessarily. It's not like a one big thing that frightens them away. It's just this really tough life that they just can't get ahead in. And it's very dehumanizing as well. We talk about the transactional nature of their mm. existence and the precarity, but even the way they're referred to, the, you know, uh, Mofei's boss doesn't even call him by his name. She just calls him engineer. Yeah, exactly. Um, You're just a commodity the, or a cog in the yeah. wheel. You're just your function, your form and your yeah. function, which is you're to, you're, only... you're a womb or you're an engineer or you're, yeah, you're just what you can provide as a service effectively. You're, you're only permitted shelter and food on, on the basis of how you can serve. And, you know, the mm. way that the rich guy's friends are sort of making fun of her, stereotyping her. Rosa is this uh, gold digger. Mm. Um, just, yeah, it's, it's horrible. Um, but it's such a realistic or such a detailed look into these worlds or a sort of deconstruction of these stereotypes. Um, so empathetic yeah. and full of humanity. It was great. And it covers a lot in two hours. I mean, I would really say to people, like, I've never been to Lagos. and I really ha feel I have a sense of it as a city. And mm. I would really encourage people to watch it just on that basis. Because, you know, like I say, second largest city in Africa we all have a duty to sort of like know more and be more better educated about things. So, yeah, I, I mean, I just think just the way he lenses it, a lot of it reminded me of how Martin Scorsese did his early films, like um, films like Mean Streets, where with Rosa in particular, she's always centered. Like there's this really interesting scene where she's sitting in a car with a friend. There's some other women chatting outside and the, the conversations are cross cutting um but he puts her he she's all it's often from her so even say if her sister's standing up and talking to her and she's on the mattress the the film will be on her and you'll only see the sister's legs it's it's really interesting so you're like you say neither of them really say so much but they are the center around which the action revolves and i often thought in a sense it makes them passive like everything is whirling around them and they're almost kind of like you know like you say trapped or claustrophobic or what choice, what choice do they really have? How much agency do they really have? Really yeah. well shot. And, and they're the sort of, they're not active agents in this world. They're just kind of the recipients of this world. They're part mm. of it and they just receive mm. it. It acts upon them, um, but they yeah. have very little agency within it. If, you, if you're a Marxist or believe in sort of like structural sort of oppression, this is the film for you because this really shows people trapped in a sort of class or economic oppression. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, phenomenal. yeah. Uh, and I thought, talking a bit about the setting, I thought it was it was interesting the way it sort of contrasts um, the setting, the stark difference between the heat and the dust and the crumbling facades of Rosa and Murphy's homes, and then and then the hospital even, and then you see the kind of the restaurant where she works and the hotel where she has dinner mm. with her boyfriend. It is that very stark class difference to to the point where there's almost two different. Lagos is occupying the same space, but just worlds apart. Yeah. And I think it's something that you see very starkly in places like Kenya and India that I'm familiar with. But honestly, I'm sitting right now on the Isle of Dogs, which is a part of East London, where you have the newly built in the 1990s financial center. So incredible wealth, right? All the investment banks and everyone mm. living in high rise flats that are newly built and really phenomenal but we're cheek by jowl we're sitting in tower hamlets which is one of the most deprived wards of europe with a high level of immigrants from places like bangladesh huge um, deprivation literally street by street so i think in a way 
sometimes when you're in Western countries, quote unquote, developed, it also exists where you are, but it's kind of easier to see. I think you get too acclimatized to it, like mm-hmm. to function. And then you see it more when you watch foreign films mm-hmm. and forget how much it really is present in your society too. Sometimes, or for me, let me just say for me, let me not impose that on anyone else. <laughs> and you can see how like, it would just drive you insane, like the Kafkaesque nature of it, like not just the bureaucracy, but the fact that nothing works, that you're constantly having to fix everything. Just just imagine all the machines that you have to, you rely on in your daily life. Imagine if you got into your car and it didn't start. Imagine if you got onto a lift and it mm. broke down halfway between floors. Imagine if you tried to turn your phone on and it just sparked and turned off. Like, and, that, and that's so the difference, isn't it? Systems. Yeah, you can live in a place like London, which fundamentally is incredibly unequal, but it's a functioning state. And there, and there is a difference between a functioning and a failed state. So a yeah. state where that you can't rely on the justice system, you can't rely on the hospital system, you can't rely that the bus is going to come and the road's going to work and the water's going to come and it's going to be clean. So that's the privilege, isn't it? And maybe it's better to, t- I suppose that's their calculation. It's, best, mm. it's better to get to a different country and tolerate being a minority and maybe suffering racial injustice, but just being in a state that functions. Mm. Um, you know, that's as a second gen immigrant, immigrants, I think that's very much the calculation that my parents and grandparents made respectively. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I really, I thought this was so powerful and actually very translatable. I think like if you're someone who watches Mike Lee films, realist films about class um, inequality in the UK or anywhere else, I think, that this is very trans it's it's so particular but it's also very um relatable mm. yeah absolutely um on the structure it, it didn't bother me too much i kind of take your point that it did almost feel like two separate films very tangentially connected by location and theme but the characters don't really interact as far as i could tell um it was strange watching this alongside confusion nawa which is very much like showing the intersection <laughs> of all these characters within within a city or is this is very isolationist like these feel like very lonely people so maybe the fact that they never meet adds to that sense of isolation and that there are people out there like you but you're made to feel so alone by your circumstances i i, I do get how it's frustrating um but i don't know to me, it was just so good that it that I didn't mind it. Yeah. Like, I'll tolerate anything. <laughs> I mean, maybe not frustrating. Enough. I just didn't find it multiplicative, right? I didn't find it. Mm. I didn't yeah. find it amplified any of them. I thought it was like, oh, this is interesting, and now this is interesting. But yeah, um, did, but like I you say, it's a phenomenal though. I did, I did get such a thrill yeah. when Grace was just all along the street and she happens across Mofe and he's got his yeah, yeah. Like, yes! outdoor prison. I was like, yes! <laughs> that was such a, yeah, that was great. And it is it is nice to have that epilogue and feel that sense of hope. But yeah, Rose's, <laughs> the end of Rose's storyline was just gutting. Yeah. But it's so, it's so moving. Oh, it's, 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 it's absolutely devastating. Film. But you know, it's a city yeah, twice yeah. the size of London, so the chances of two people meeting are demon and mystery. Yeah, 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 sure. Um, but yeah, definitely want to keep an eye out on what those uh, what that filmmaker does next, mm. or what those two filmmakers next for sure. Um, but let's move on. Uh, Bina, would you like to tell us about your film? So, I would say that for me and maybe others, um, the way you first interact with Nigerian culture is through its music more than its cinema. And if you interact with its music, you'll probably have heard of Fela Kuti, who is such a phenomenal musician. He kind of created a genre of Afrobeat. And I remember growing up and my uncle having lots of his albums because his songs are not so much songs as sets 
just like this mix of kind of Miles Davis, late years, free jazz, soul and African rhythms that just go for like 20 minutes um, of drug induced kind of <laughs> just it's a scene. It's a vibe. <laughs> and yeah. there are many. Doc- well, there's a handful of documentaries you can watch to understand Fela Kuti. Lots of stuff on YouTube. I think the one people more often have heard of is Finding Fella, which was directed by Alex Gibney, who's, you know, an Oscar winning, very famous documentarian. Um, and that documentary was, um, I think it was conceived when there was a Broadway show called Fella about his music. Um, and it's, it's a well-made documentary. There's, there's nothing um, wrong with it. But the one I have recommended is one called My Friend Fella or Mo Amigo Fela um, by Joel Zito Araujo, um, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, that was brought out in 2019. And he's a Cuban director. And why I like this one is because I feel that it's very even-handed about Fela Kuti. So we can do the positive and the negative. He's this fantastic musician, um, also traveled to the UK, traveled to the USA. He had a classical music education in London. Um, He spent time with the Black Panthers in America, which really, I think, not formed his political conscience, but helped him articulate it. He came back to Nigeria and, you know, had this amazing nightclub that was a total scene, Um, almost created like a charismatic political movement that was critical of all the corruption. This is the time when Nigeria discovers its oil wealth and you start seeing the elites even post-colonial, that nothing really improves because then the elite black people take all the petrochemical money and kind of create the society that we then see in the film that you suggested, Duncan. Um, So he becomes a huge critic of the the government and the government go after him and they go after his family. And you see the kind of the appalling um, sort of price he pays for that through political harassment. Um, His wife... um, or some of his wives, plural, are raped um, by government agents. And it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's really a brutal document of, I guess, Nigeria in that period, post-colonial, but being corrupted in its own way through petrochemical wealth and the inequality of that. And also, you know, the rise of pan-Africanism, um, which was very present when I used to go back to Kenya in the 80s. This idea that maybe African nations had more in common, that they had a part and that they should bound together. and you know, kind of the same period as pan-Arabism. So for people who like post-colonial studies, you can see it all through fellas' lives. But why I like this doc is it's very even-handed. So it talks about how amazing he is as a musician, how influential as a political freedom fighter and activist. But um, Fela Kuti is not, (laughs) he is not a feminist, even though his mum was a feminist. Um, He believes or justifies, who knows how cynical this was, that he can express his tribal authentic way of living by taking many many wives or concubines um so he basically has this harem and he does not treat these women well there's footage in the film um of kind of like you know physical abuse of women um huge sexism so i think i really like this film because i think as with many of these famous figures you know we're all human we have very many facets to our lives. And I think a good documentary should show all of those facets. So, yeah, that's my friend Fella. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this documentary. I had never heard of this person. So I have been loving going through Spotify and listening to his songs, which are Yay. awesome. They, yeah. don't, they don't feel, I mean, they're from the 70s, but they don't, you know, they're just as fun and vivacious. And I was playing it in lounge room today and my little infant was dancing along. She really Yay. enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> 
yeah it is it is cool it, it's like it is just a vibe and um there is there are lyrics but it, it's really just an amazing mix of yeah jazz and funk saxophone um there was some uh clarinet um in one of the songs we listened to which my partner loved because she plays clarinet and yeah it was just a really nice groove and um i thought it was interesting part of the documentary is that he started off just as any other you know musician singer um, but gradually as he started interacting with more people in the kind of civil rights movement or the pan-african movement his songs became more political and he used it you know that was his instrument and he used it to speak up for um african people and african diaspora including the, the descendants of uh of slavery in the united states and attacked his own government guilty and still are you know were for a long time guilty of civil rights violations and various atrocity and corruption so it was a fascinating sort of figure in his own right an artist but also just kind of this uh locus of all this all these amazing radical things that were happening in the 60s and 70s um and even i think it was interesting coming from the subject carlos moore who is a you know fascinating figure in his own right and a big writer and activist and political uh, agitator um mm. and their articulations of what pan-africanism is is really interesting and it's a very unique movement and it's funny to think of like this whole series of sort of national cinemas you know we sort of divide it by country a country like nigeria you know the, the borders of that country were not necessarily drawn up by the by the indigenous people of that country they were bought drawn up by european colonizing powers uh who drew it up as real estate things like that so it's funny you know i think pan africanism shows that some people can't be divided into country that some movements dissolve borders and and some movements promote solidarity between people from different places who have similar struggles and similar true backgrounds and similar yeah, goals yeah it's already a good way of putting like, it yeah like the, the people you know, oppressed people of uh united states and brazil and haiti and africa as well yeah. that's how it worked and music is such a powerful connective tissue for that because it it can transcend mm. language and it can it's like that yeah. and and i, I mean it, it, again really we cool get back to marxism community. right an oppressed worker mm. in like in lagos is going to have more in common with an oppressed worker in syria and london probably than um an elite person in lagos and an oppressed worker in lagos right i mean the and also, I think an interesting part of, of Africa is tribes, and often the tribal identity is stronger than the national, because as you say, the national's kind of somewhat arbitrary, um, mm. and the tribal is strong. And a lot of the kind of the way the wealth is um, distributed in and government posts and posts of power are distributed in some of these post-colonial powers is by tribe, um, which I think Fedakuti kind of understood very well. And national borders, in many ways, that have been imposed upon this continent are a way of kind of dividing and conquering but if you can connect different groups from all over the world for a common cause you can amass more power um mm. you know you don't have to think of it as nigerians versus haitian nigerians versus brazil oh they they United do States. i mean like if you ever see nigerian and ghanaian people argue about who has the best jollof rice it's hilarious so <laughs> right. i think that like I think what what happens though is like these may have been like artificially imposed borders, but you know, fifty yeah. years later, they then they come they become self fulfilling, and the sure, to me the, the dream of Pan Africanism has died, hasn't it? Because now there is a great deal of Nigerian versus Ghanaian versus Ivory Coast, um, yeah. kind of like pride, and also you know you, you just see it on all sorts of like economic rivalries, but also expressions around the World Cup that we've just had. 
all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And in some ways, it's it's kind of sad watching something like this and seeing all of these people with such passion and hope. Yeah, uh, he was what, naive what in a way, been? though. I mean, if you if you create a compound in the center of Lagos and then declare it its own republic of yourself, I mean, yeah. of course the government's going to have beef with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Kuti himself was. Uh, very largely <laughs> yeah had an inflated <laughs> sense of what what he was capable of but but even things like um singing in in this kind of pidgin english kind of crisscross of languages i thought was interesting because it allowed him to connect with with more people which was what his goal was mm, mm, so, mm. um but yeah i mean the do- as you said the documentary is even-handed and um it sh- it interviews at least one of his wives and she expresses how tough it was to actually live with him and live in that arrangement. Yeah. And the fact that, yeah, she calls it, calls it a harem and Carlos tries to smooth it and make it more attractive. But, I mean, she was the one that was actually married to him. So I, I trust yeah. her account. And that's why I like this version. I mean, Finding Fellas easier to wa- it's easier to find, so I think more people watch it. But this mm, does yeah. give a voice or tries to give a voice to the women, which I really appreciate. Mm. So, yeah. And um, and even I think there was they were talking about his first wife and the fact that she demanded he, she be considered the, the top wife. So there was this hierarchy, and it, yeah. it's hard to. It's tricky. Pretty. It's such a tricky thing because we think about individual can be capable of good and bad attributes, and even movements like Pan African be can contain these competing elements and ideologies that don't really cohere. I mean, it's different difficult to cohere this kind of return to tribal purity with ideals like feminine. It's tricky. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's really provocative. It really makes you think. I think a lot of what Fella played in his music, but a lot of what he did in his life makes you think. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm strongly of the opinion you can enjoy the art without validating everything that the life was about. Mm. And, yeah, I love Fella Cutie's music. So, And if anyone gets the chance to see Fella, if it ever gets revived, it's a great... It's a great show. So it was a real sensation when it played her. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but it seemed to be part of that craze of kind of jukebox musicals. So they, they yes. actually used his songs <laughs> and then used that to, to kind of weave a narrative of his life. Yeah. That's um, cool. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, is, it is a tricky documentary to find. Like you can find Finding Feller on YouTube um, if you just want an overview of, of his life. But um, my friend Feller... I could only find it on Vimeo. You have to rent it, um, but it is there. The French is not translated, but most of it's in English, so you only miss like five percent of it. Um, but check it out. But probably more importantly, check out his music. Yeah, just, just go, go to Spotify. Spotify. Just listen to some fella. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. It's just really good to just chuck on in the background. It's, yeah, yeah, it's really fun. All right, let's jump to our final film, which I'll be presenting, and it is called Confusion Nawa is actually uh, inspired by a song from Delacuti or Confusion, and it's a 2013 dark comedy directed by Kenneth Gang. It follows a group of strangers whose lives become intertwined over the course of 24 hours in a northern Nigerian city. The action is kicked off when petty thieves Charles and Chichi stumble across the mobile phone of businessman Imika and demand he pay a ransom for it. The film is lively, goofy, and fun, boasting a great soundtrack and occasional moments of pathos. It reminded me a lot of the 90s films like Pulp Fiction and Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, um, which also feature this kind of intersecting ensemble of criminals and oddballs who uh, spout witty and often metatextual dialogue. 
Um, and to me, Confusion Nawa was was really about the chaos and the, the frequent misunderstandings of modern life um, and how the actions of one person ripple outwards and affect everyone else. And I think thematically, I think there's some similarity between this and Aemof, but um, this is a much lighter and, and much funner um, version of that story. Uh, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I found it fun. And it's probably the first comedy in this, uh, the movie Passport series that I've actually enjoyed. The other ones I didn't quite vibe with, but this was quite fun and I enjoyed the characters. Uh, but what Do you think you it's Bina? because, yeah, I mean, I'm the same. Like, I think comedy is the hardest to translate, right, to different cultures. Mm. It's so culturally specific, whereas drama is, and documentary are easier to translate. I did enjoy mm. it. And I'm glad you mentioned Lockstock because I found it very Guy Ritchie-esque. And maybe that's why I found it quite funny, because although it was a Nigerian film, it felt very kind of comfortable to watch. Like it's something I was very familiar with. Um, mm. And it also, I mean, the whole discussion about The Lion King really reminded me of Clerks and the discussion about Return of the Jedi. I'm, I just thought it was hilarious when they're teasing the guy singing down his phone, can you feel the love tonight and all that. I mean, I was literally like laughing out loud in my lounge, which very few English and American films do for me, let alone let alone a Nigerian one. And it, oh, and it is this... Sorry. Oh, it was so good. No, just as soon as he says, The Lion King is a neo-colonial propaganda. I'm like, yes, go off, King. <laughs> just, just this, you know, just this weed-smoking college student, you know, just going off in a film class. So good. I know. And it's just such a, and even when they get like thrown in jail and they've given their names as like the, as the characters from Lion King, it's just, it's a brilliant conceit and it yeah. gives it such joy and verve. And, but then there are moments, like you say, I mean, it's a, tra in some ways it's a tragic film because these two um, hustlers um, are trapped in the same economic system that's trapped the characters in Imof, and um, they're making choices that are going to lead to some tragedy as well. And they are trapped, and they have a sense of humour about it. But and again, you see that class split, right? The very middle class cheating husband versus the sort of working class hustlers mm -hmm. who are kind of forced into the underworld of just you know just trying to sort of make a living or scratch a living. And I really. I, I love films where you can have a bit of both and I think it's always really hard to handle like it's it's a very hard thing right to combine comedy and pathos and I just really I found it really hilarious this is if you like if you like this there are quite a few like modern Hollywood films that are quite quite good like this and I really love the bits of Nigerian film that I've watched because they do embrace a kind of uh, larger than life character driven comedy um, and just like way too much plot for anyone's own good <laughs> That gives it this little chaotic feel. But I had great fun with this, and I was pleasantly surprised to see it on Netflix. It was like, yay, this is good. And, and it blends tone quite well. Like mm. the first, the first sections do feel like, yeah, that kind of fast-paced you know, Hollywood kind of ensemble action comedy. You know, the really sort of witty sort of uh, back and forths. But then it'll switch into like these very melodramatic scenes between the hub husbands and wife when you know one of them realizes the other one's cheating and it'll zoom in on this mm. shock. Like it just felt like a, a you know like a soap opera at that point. Or when the when the father is like thinking that his gun his his son might be gay and he looks yeah. over at his son <laughs> sitting next to a boy and it's just the look of horror. Like it was just so campy and silly. Like and it, like there's it's there's some jokes that really goofy and silly and some are quite witty and and yeah it's, it's a nice mix of, of styles yeah but you definitely see the influence of watching some of those uh late sort of early 2000s guy ritchie films and 
Well, um, I had a look. I had a look to see what other films were like this, and apparently they have a name, and it's called the Hyperlink, and it dates back yeah. to like uh, so. It's so it's a complex or multi-linear narrative structure with multiple characters under one unifying theme. That's the Wikipedia definition. So don't cite me. Um, but it dates back to like Rules of the Game, Nashville. Um, there was a lot of comedies in the '90s. Richard Linklater films, Guy Ritchie, Tarantino, Pulp Spike Fiction, Lee, City of yeah, God, like, Days of like yeah. do, do, do the right do the right things, sort of similar. Love yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the serious things like Alejandro Gonzalez, Inurito, um, Babel, and, and all that. Um, mm. But it is this kind of yeah. It's usually a city drama, and, and it's called Hyperlink because I think it's sort of like one character will sort of have a sort of connection to another character and that's how the narrative sort of jumps between that one Mm. person will be related or one person's actions will affect another so it kind of builds this sort of dense web of a world a sort of cause and effect narrative yeah there was definitely a moment wasn't there so it feels like when you when you look on um on imdb has got a list of the best hyper hyperlink movies and it starts with pulp fiction but Mm. in the in the 2000s has a lot right snatch Traffic, mm. I mean, Lockstock, late 90s, Magnolia, 99, um, mm. City of God, 2002, Morris Parish, 2000. It feels like late 90s, early 2000s was like the peak of this genre in, in the West anyway. Crash, do you remember when Crash won the Oscar and everyone was shocked and broke back in 2004? <laughs> uh, outrageous. Um, I know. There you go. Yeah, amazing. It really is like a moment, isn't it, of cinema history well thank you for giving me that uh, definition i did not know that was a thing but it makes total sense <laughs> yeah so so i think it is taking inspiration from that hollywood style or from that british action comedy style but i guess i'm interested in what 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 makes it specifically like nigerian what are some of the nigerian themes or ideas that that sort of separate it from, from hollywood well i mean the setting i mean lagos is so alive it's so it's so visceral Mm-hmm. Um, and the chaos of it, but also just the circumstances, right? The idea that the way the justice system works, the way the police system works, this idea mm-hmm. of the nature of the criminality is very different to what you find in Lockstock, even though that's in the same milieu, but in London. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a, and also the humour is, it's, it feels like it's a broader, um, the metatextual stuff's there, but it does feel like it embraces more the sort of gonzo broad humour than maybe mm. an equivalent British movie would. Um, so I feel there's enough of it. But like I said, it to me, it's this is the kind of like the multi, the multifaceted flow of ideas back and forth, because it's obviously taking... So, you can imagine they made this in 2014 at the filmmakers 10 years prior were watching as teenagers, like hyper-cinema-sensitive teenagers, some of the films coming in and getting influenced, but then still keeping some of that Nigerian element, which is really lovely, and then giving it back to us 10 years later. Well, apparently, like Quentin Tarantino, prior to being a filmmaker, Kenneth Yang worked a video store. This does not surprise me at all. They were were both kind of weaned on on popular cinema. Yeah. It has that that postmodern metatextual, like we're aware of cinema and we're going to talk about it and discuss that. That it's... I would bet he's watched Clark's, the other film about people working in a video store and talking about other films. And so the circle of life is complete. (laughs) <laughs> I've never heard anyone call it Clarks. That's that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, like that that conversation about the Lion King, two mates talking about Lion King, is exactly the two guys talking about Return of the Jedi in Clarks. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But definitely, there's a there's a preoccupation on civil corruption and bureaucracy, and and there seems to be a lot more casual criminality in this film. Like even Lockstock, the criminals were you know 
they had to there was a sense in which the police were around and they and they had to keep it on the lowdown but in mm. this film the only time the police show up is to enforce a curfew uh the rest of the time they're kind of given free reign um and it's even probably more office, similar to snatch actually then if you want to look at guy Ritchie, because snatch is a film that just feels very absent the rule of law mm. it's just criminals dealing with criminals and it's criminals policing criminals like you didn't play by the rules of the criminal games so now i'm going to come and wreak vengeance sort of thing yeah, and, and the butt of the joke is the office worker, the one guy yeah, yeah, who's yeah, trying yeah. to do things by the book and is uh, and, and, you know, the open corruption happens in his office. No one respects him. He's not uh, rewarded for doing everyone else's work. He's been mocked for it. So it shows perhaps how that, 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 uh, that criminality is, um, is, a la- is tolerated. Mm. The one guy who's trying to do things by the book is, um, you know, it fails when, when he might be the hero of another film. Mm. I agree. Uh, I really enjoyed this, actually. Yeah. And it was a really interesting mix of films. We had a very serious, like, neorealist drama. We had a music-oriented political doc. And then we mm. had this really fun, almost like a caper movie, but with a bit of, re- like, realism in there at times. It was, like, a really lovely yeah. mix. Unintent- like, not deliberately, but, yeah. Well done. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Like, often, <laughs> often there'll be one that's, that's not as enjoyable as the others, but this was, these were all nice. And this yeah. even Confusion Now was quite fun and light. Like it, it, wasn't, mm. it wasn't dragging at all. It was really enjoyable. Um, and I thought it was, last point I'll make is it was interesting how it kind of fell between the sort of different movements of Nollywood film because IMOFA was very much of that new Hollywood, a new Nollywood cinema where it's very austere and very technically proficient great actors um all the you know high budget obviously it looks beautiful whereas confusion now i was made on a shoestring budget um like a lot of the nollywood films thing before it but it's got so much uh love and and passion poured into it that it rises above its its grassroots and it just really works because of all the talent involved Mm. um but yeah uh, i think that's all we have to say on those films um are there any other nigerian films you'd recommend yeah i was trying to look through my old reviews and i was like "Mm, i haven't really written many up but the one that i watched quite recently 2019 same year as my friend fella actually was one called walking with shadows and Mm -hmm. i don't know if that's just what gets programmed in the london film festival it feels a lot of recent dramas that have come out of africa that have been shown in london are focused on this idea of homophobia and the kind of the legacy of a lot of these um, sort of colonial Protestant evangelical churches that have taken on a life of their own. And you get a little bit of it, don't you, in Confusion Noir, or not Confusion yeah. Noir, in, um, was it in IMO for yeah, that? Yeah. Sort of like the father who's like, oh my God, what if my son's gay? And no, that's this, confusion. Yeah, Confusion Noir. And this one is about someone who is in the closet and being threatened with exposure um, and a very, very well acted and very well produced, more like IMO Finn style. So it probably is like mm-hmm. new like new nollywood um thinking yep. of it now but i'd really recommend that i'm not sure how easy it is to get hold of um whereas i'm f- well for me i could rent it on amazon prime um and like you say confusion i was on netflix which makes things easier but i'd really recommend that that was the one thing i didn't like about confusion now that 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 plot thread was unresolved like you see mm. the boy go into the brothel and then it's never picked up again because it seemed sympathetic to that character like his father was postured as this sort of thuggish reactionary kind of figure yeah just look down on everyone else and the boy seemed sensitive and and had an interesting comeback to the to the dad at the table about the causes of criminality but um yeah his story just kind of like peters off without resolution. Mm. 
But um, it's good that there are some some interesting films about um, LGBT that are starting to filter into Nigerian cinema. Yeah, there's a fair amount, and I feel it's it's almost like a best handled, isn't it, in real cinema? This sort of new queer cinema that's emerging, which I, I'm really excited about. So that's Walking with Shadows. Um, yep. I I haven't watched any other Nigerian films, so I can't recommend them. But these are some films that in my research looked really interesting. The first was The Figurine, which is a horror film from 2009. And it, the conceit is that it's sort of like a based on a Nigerian folk tale. Um, so I thought that would be kind of interesting to look at some, some of the tribal mythology and how it's uh, adapted into a contemporary film. And um, there's a TV melodrama called Living in Bondage, which reading the plot synopsis on Wikipedia sounds insane. Like it starts as a melodrama <laughs> thriller, but gradually there's like a deal with the devil and his, he kills his wife and she haunts him as a ghost and he goes crazy. And it sounds insane, but it was one of the highest grossing films uh, of all time and sort of set the Hollywood uh, industry on fire in the 1990s. So I do want to check that out at some stage. I think the whole thing is on YouTube. Um, they're very lax about copyright in Nigeria, it seems. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, there's The Wedding Party, which is, a, I think, the highest grossing Nollywood film of all time. Certainly Gosh. at the time it was. So it's a comedy, um, a kind of upstairs, downstairs. Um, and then finally, there's 76, which is a historical drama about an unsuccessful military. It came out a few years ago. Um, but uh, yeah. Was there any other African countries you'd be interested in covering? I think you mentioned Algeria on the Discord. Yeah, I find there's good cinema coming out from there. Um, Senegal's interesting. Um, it all seems West African, though, weirdly. Yeah. I feel yeah. like I've seen a couple of good films from Mali, but like my, my knowledge is so minimal, Duncan, that yeah, I wouldn't take that as representative in any way. Yeah. I'd love to do one in Senegal. Yeah, totes. I'm, I'm up for that if you want to do that like the 70s Tukibi and all that stuff. And then even recently, there's a movie called Atlantics, which is getting a lot of acclaim from Senegal. Um, and I haven't seen um, uh, Battle for Algiers, so I'd love to see that one day. Oh, That'd that's good, epic. Good excuse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Been but, decades uh, since yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that looks really um, But yeah, that brings us to the end of this installment of the movie Passport. Let us know what you thought of the episode and if you have any other Nigerian movie recommendations. And let us know what other world movies you'd like to hear us discuss. You can leave comments or questions on our WordPress page and join us on the Vassals of Kingsgrave Discord server. I'd like to thank my fellow hosts for this episode, Bina, and thank you for listening. Goodbye, or as the Nigerians say, or double. <laughs>